Manufacturing Hub. Very excited to have Addison on here, who we'll introduce in just a couple of minutes. Continuing our conversations around systems integrators of the future, we've had two really good conversations so far on the show. I know that we've had a number of, I guess I've had a number of conversations with other folks surrounding systems integration over the course of this month. So I will say, if you guys are in from some of those other channels, please feel free to go ahead and drop comments in the chat. We do our very best to go bring chat into this. And if it's something that we can answer in the course and flow of our normal conversation, absolutely happy to. If it's something we can't, we do our very best to come back and answer questions beyond that. And having said that, if you guys are new here, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. Our main goal this month is to talk about systems integrators of the future. We're having four really interesting conversations surrounding that. We do want to thank our sponsors, Opto22, for continuing to have their support, both of this show, the community at large, as well as making a ton of awesome devices that we will undoubtedly get into in, in just a moment. And I would say, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in. Everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I'm Dave. This guy up here is Vlad. This month long, we're all talking about systems integrators of the future, mostly talking to systems integrators who we are very confident will be here five or 10 years plus from now. And with that, we'd like to welcome Addison Wagey of Vertec. Addison, I'm pretty sure I got your last name correct. Welcome to the show. You did. Thanks, Dave. Happy to be here. Sweet. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us today, Addison, and thank you so much for taking the time. Before we dive into the meat of the conversation, could you give us a little bit of a background of yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I currently work for Vertec, which is a system integrator. We're based out of Phoenix, Arizona, but we also have offices in Nashville, Austin, Texas, and Irvine, California. So I'm out of the Nashville office. I graduated college with a degree in electrical engineering from Michigan Tech, way up in Northern Michigan. So that's my background. But basically since about my sophomore year of college, I've been in the like manufacturing execution SCADA space. I started as an intern my sophomore year of college working in the food and beverage industry, where I basically jumped straight into doing MES integrations. I worked real close with a couple other engineers to basically bring an entire plant up from the legacy home-built factory talk version of an MES system. And we ported everything into inductive automation's ignition. And then I went on to work for an OEM after that for about a year. And then also following that worked for a electrical controls integrator after I graduated school. Decided I didn't really like doing the controls part as much and really wanted to get back into doing some more of the like programming MES side of things. So that's when I reached out to Vertec, who I had known a couple contacts with. And I've been here ever since and I'm absolutely loving it. So what I do here is I prim primarily work MES integrations. So anything from OE systems, track and trace systems, a little bit of SPC here and there, databases, ERP integrations, pretty much all that stuff. Absolutely loving it and happy to be here. So that's a little bit about me. Addison, really curious about the comment control systems versus higher level of that OSI pyramid, if you will. What was the interesting, I want to see, decision of going that route versus controls and offering a perspective for someone who's considering that choice or maybe is currently in controls looking into MES and SCADA systems? What are the decisions you had made at the time? Yeah, I really can't say that I didn't like doing controls work. I did enjoy it. Like I was pretty good at it when I did do it, did a lot of PLC programming back in the day, like motion control, stuff like that. But the big thing for me was like back when I was in school and even in some of my past jobs, I always just really enjoyed, especially like the data science part of things. So if you're somebody who's like looking to do more of a data driven approach and not to say like controls doesn't do that, like you do deal with some small amount of data. But for me, that data approach was what drove me more towards the MES side of things versus sticking to like what you would typically consider like classical controls engineering where you're dealing with PLCs and drives and sensors and stuff like that. Gotcha. And what was the learning curve like? I guess speaking for myself, at least the electrical engineering degree had a heavy focus on hardware and system design control systems with, I want to say a portion of software, but I want to say it's, it was a lot more like on the lower level side. Oh, I guess yeah. like, what was the learning curve for you? And I guess like, how did you supplement maybe 
the lack of at least I don't know about everything about your program, but maybe the yeah. lack of software focus to to get into MES and SCADA. Yeah, it's definitely not emphasized, especially if you're doing like an industrial degree or an electrical degree of like how do you actually get into the software side more. You do have to supplement that with, I did a ton of like self-learning about databases and a lot of like programming self-learning. I took some courses back when I was in school on it, but honestly, the stuff that I did by myself was way more beneficial than what anything that I learned in school. But I actually do think that the MES side of things, I think it's actually more important that you have just a background in some type of process engineering in general, more so than your actual programming background. Here at Vertec, we have, we have people who mainly come from either chemical engineering, mechanical engineering, and electrical engineering, way more than we have any type of like software engineers, mostly because the software part of it, I think is a lot easier to learn than the process side of it. So what am I actually doing in this process? Because it's a lot easier to learn how to code than it is to teach somebody how to be like a classical engineer, I guess you could say. So I would say if anybody's thinking about going into it and they're like, I don't know about the coding side, I've never done any of that before. If you've got the process, like engineering part of it down, like you're golden, you'll be able to learn the rest of it. Awesome. Interesting. I guess I, I had some thoughts around there, but I know that people always ask, what does it take to make that step from either like electrical engineer, control systems engineer that are looking again, I, I would say that there's a higher importance today placed on MES, SCADA data in general. So I think that many people see opportunities and on the same side, I think that there's not enough people that know those disciplines well enough to be able to fill the positions. No, um, and there's definitely not, like nobody is graduating with a degree and yes, like that's just not a thing that exists. Like you're either a, a, an engineer or you're like getting a CS degree. So we really need more people to bridge that gap. And I don't want to be biased, but I do think the people coming from the chemi or the electrical or the mechanical just tend to like fit better into this space just because of that background knowledge that you already have. Interesting. Dave, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. I agree. I think it's interesting, Addison. I'd like to talk a little bit how you found that first MES position, right? Because I guess we've had many conversations. Lots of people have done MES. Lots of people have done kind of data very infrequently do you almost stumble across that position very infrequently is it like the first opportunity that you have but it feels like you have some strong opinions so can you tell us how you found that first position and gravitated more towards the data side than the industrial control side so actually believe it or not i did stumble upon the first okay. opportunity of it i was going in looking for more of a controls position but it just so happened that the position that they had was more of this MES thing. And I didn't even know that until I started. Yeah. So I just got thrown into it, not even realizing that's what I was going to be doing. And then after a couple months, six, eight months of doing that, I like figured out then that this is actually like really cool. And I didn't okay. even know this existed before. Like prior to that, I had no conception whatsoever that this was even like a field you could go into. So I hope that that doesn't really answer your question, but it made it kind no, of stumbling I across it. I think it does, right? So many times we've had a lot of guests come on and their best advice is say yes and learn a ton of things, oh, yeah. try as many different things as you can early on in your career so that it gives you the broader exposure. And I feel like the answer is you said yes and then you looked up six or 12 months later and you're like, oh, I'm doing something pretty cool. It's yeah. not maybe not necessarily what I was considering that I wanted to do, but I'm doing something pretty cool. Can we expand forward in your career? You said that is very much your focus. We'll have an awesome clip in which you say something like, I hate controls, I love MES, that, that comes up. But going and gravitating more towards the, the data side of things, can you tell us a little bit about that progression? So you're working for the place, you're like, hey, the, this data information is cool. Do you have maybe an example of kind of one of those, uh, did you have an aha moment? And then how did you decide that you wanted to, to stay in more of the data side of things. Yeah, I think a big part of it was like myself, like a lot of engineers, like we really strive to reduce inefficiency wherever possible. And like, we see something and we're like, how can I improve this? How can I automate this? How can I make it better? And what I was noticing, especially working like with the OEM that I work for and with the past integrator that I work for doing controls, 
like you'd be at a plant and some form of data collection that somebody standing there with a clipboard and writing things on a clipboard and then entering it into an Excel program. And in my mind, like having had the like MES, like development type of work done in the past, like I look at that and I'm like, oh, we could improve that so much. Like we could automate that. We could throw that into a database. We could run analytics on it. We can drive results from that. And I think so much of what I saw was just like this antiquated systems that people are running and the inner engineer in me who is, wants to make these efficiency gains was like, I want to be doing that. That seems to me like where the industry is going long-term is this kind of data aggregation collection. So it was really just the experience of working with different customers, clients, and seeing the like way that things have been done for the last 20 years. And then also having the vision of this is where the industry is going. I want to be riding that wave basically. Okay. I like that. I, I know Vlad and I have both kind of talked about the pain in our careers of having seen that and being like, Hey, there are, these are all these great opportunities and people just look at you and they're like, Addison, we've always done it this way, right? Yeah. We've always done it this way. We will always continue to do it this way. We could go remove all those inefficiencies. We could go automate kind of these parts out of it, but we've been successful doing it this way for maybe longer than you've been alive. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we will do our very best to continue to do it the exact same way throughout the course of the rest of your career. So what was the journey from that point to where you are now? What caused you to say, hey, I want to go work with a more future looking integrator on these much more specific types of projects? Honestly, you said it right in what you said, right? I would hear from people like this is the way we've always done it. So therefore, yep. we're not going to change. And I was hearing that from people that I worked with or like customers that we were working with. And to me, like that was just not something that I really wanted to hear. Like I wanted to be like part of something where we are going to change these things because there are efficiency gains that can be made and we can improve the process, make it better, get better data. So that's basically what you just said is what drove me to that decision. Yeah. And I Absolutely. think, look, I think at the end of the day, systems integrators are trying to change the way they obviously approach these problems. I think they're also trying to attract, I want to say like younger engineers who are excited to bring in, I want to say different ways of thinking. And it's just, I guess I don't have a right or wrong answer, but I think that changing that mindset towards we are willing to at the very least try something and be part of the change versus just saying, we're always going to implement it in a very standardized way. We've done it is extremely important because that attracts people who are excited about new solutions, yeah. excited to try things out. And at least that's my opinion, right? Because I certainly know there's a lot of opportunity to just copy paste what's already been done. There, there's yeah. not a shortage, I want to say, like of that work either. But if I want to ask you, I guess, Addison, speaking of maybe the way. So I'd like to take this conversation from like both sides, right? So I think that systems integrators are finding new ways to innovate. They're looking I would imagine that all the newer technologies that are in the market, they're trying to assess like what's making sense, right? Is it going to be industry 4.0? Is it going to be IoT, AI, machine learning, BR, AR? There's a whole, I want to say, array of different things. And the same goes for the end users, right? Like they're also doing their own investigations. They're also having their own thoughts. Like what is your, I guess, starting from the systems integrator, maybe point of view, like how do you evaluate, navigate and adopt and understand what's going to be the wave of the future that you should be investing more into? So I think it really comes down to looking around and seeing what other people are doing. But at the same time, somebody has to be on that cutting edge and just try things out. So like I've with several projects that I've had, like we try to do some like AI integrations here and there develop some machine learning, but it's really just looking to the community to see what people are doing going forward. At the same time, though, like as a system integrator ourselves, like we are sometimes we're constrained by what the customer wants us to do. Right. So I can't necessarily go and develop something unless the customer is driving it. So a lot of what like we as system integrators are seeing right now is let's say a customer has some desire. They see some buzzword and they want to create an application for that. So really, I think the drive for a lot of these things is coming from the customers. And then as we get projects in the door where let's say something goes really well for a specific customer, we might be able to use that experience to then sell that same solution out to a different customer. One of the things that we've been doing a lot more of here at Vertec 
is a lot like better UI design. So one of the things that people are really starting to push for is like applications that look like they could go toe to toe with like something that was made by Google or Facebook, which is like unheard of in the automation sphere, right? Everybody's used to their factory talk panels with the teal background that's looked the same since the nineties. And now you're starting to have these applications that are like on a desk of a C-suite executive. So that is like one area where we've seen a lot of different customers gravitate towards. And now we've started to sell that because now we have people who know how to do it because customers have come and asked for it. So now we're using that as a selling point to drive like future business and say, Hey, look, we built this application. It looks like it was built by like Google or Facebook. It looks pretty. So that's probably the best example of that in the short term that I can think of there. And it's an important concept, right? I think it also boils down to usability. It also boils down to familiarity, right? If you're going to be, I want to say, on your phone for a, I want to say, a big portion of your time outside of work, once you come in and you're given an application or whether it is SCADA, MES, ERP, if it looks more familiar to what you're used to, I think it's going to be also easier to use, right? So I want to also not undersell that it's not just the visual. It also makes it easier for people to adopt some right. of these, I want to say, applications that are a lot more complex under under the hood than they than they may initially appear. But no, I definitely see that being like a big change. What is, I guess, you mentioned a little bit the end users driving some of those initiatives. Do you see them being more open than they're used to being? At least from my side, I want to throw in like cloud in there as well. So what is there like cloud IoT? industry for that oh like i'm curious like in your conversations do you hear more of that or do you see them being more skeptical towards that so it's on both fronts right because on on one hand like if you open up linkedin these days all you're going to see is all the buzzwords right you're going to see industry 4.0 you're going to see cloud iot everything and a lot of times when you get like a customer that comes to us and asks for a specific project, they might be like, oh, I want it to include like this cloud portion, or I want it to, mm -hmm. to, to include machine learning without sometimes them really understanding what that is. So like they might ask for that. And then the engineers actually implementing it might be a little bit more skeptical. So it always comes to be this like kind of push and pull between the people who are actually paying for the project and want these buzzwords to be included versus what's a little bit more realistic from the integration side and the engineering side. And I guess like I'm only making assumptions like in that case, but I'm assuming you have to educate the customers a little yes. bit more on what it would take yes. and explain to them. Okay, yeah, I, I guess like, I'm curious about those interactions or like what your thoughts are on yeah, again, so that, like, integrators being more of an educator versus just a pure like solutions provider. And that's honestly something that I think like everyone across the board is just going to have to get better with in the future because there is that communication disconnect sometimes between what is asked for and what's even able to be delivered. I guess a great example of this is let's say a customer comes to us and they say, I want to be able to see like my downtime values for all my machines at this entire facility. And like from the person sitting in like the manager office, they might say, that's a great idea, right? I'll be able to see which machines are down, why they're going down. And from like an engineering standpoint where I'm sitting, I'll be like, that sounds great. Let's do it. And then when you start to talk to people, and this usually happens after a project has already had the kickoff. You start to find out like, oh, wait a second. Like how are, like you have no connection to these machines at all. There's not even an ethernet connection. Like how are we even going to get this data? So a lot of those questions of what's even possible to do from the start, we have to be having those conversations a little bit more. Cause like right now there seems to be very high like expectations without even understanding what the initial conditions are. Which is just something like that's just a very narrow example, but across the board with a lot of that stuff, ERP integrations happens a lot in that way. A lot of the data collection stuff from different systems happens that way. So I think having that bridging that communication gap is definitely going to be something that like just we have to get better across the board at. Dave, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. So Addison, I think you brought up a bunch of good points, right? And I think one of them is at some point customers are going to have to go drive these conversations forward, the development forward. But I guess I, I firstly would like to have a conversation around. So there, there are technologists generally with customers. There are technologists sitting here taught, having this conversation and listening in and at many different systems integration companies. At what percentage or how much of the responsibility 
of driving the technology and the things that we do technology wise forward rests with the end users versus systems integration systems integrators of the future versus maybe OEMs who are developing the technology and should be helping to give us direction on at least a number of different ways to use their systems. That's a really good question. And I think it comes down to what kind of a project you're actually doing, right? Because there are some projects where like you don't necessarily want to be like the ones driving the edge forward. But in a situation where let's take like machine learning and AI, which is like the big buzzword right now, do you think that there's probably going to be about like a 50, 50 split between the systems integrator and the customer, because like on one point, like the systems integrator is not going to go forward with a new piece of technology, unless we're like being asked to do it partially because there's like risk associated with that. We still have to be able to meet our project deadlines and with a new technology like that, like there's so many unknowns that like, it's really hard to be able to commit to that promise unless the customer is saying, this is something we absolutely want. We're going to give you a flexible budget to be able to do that. So especially between like system integrator and customer and user, I think it's going to have to be more of a 50, 50 split before we can really see some of this stuff take off just because of the risk associated with pulling up this new technology that arguably not a lot of people, especially in the automation world have ever touched before. Absolutely. Yeah, I would like to comment. Well, I, I think, I, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I'd, I'd like to get you to weigh in on this and because I would imagine you might have a bit of a different perspective and I feel like I've got a bit of a different perspective as well. I was going to say, I think it really depends on company size as well, because I think few organizations would have, as Addison mentioned, the budget to run R and D projects. I think at least like from my experience, smaller organizations will only adopt whatever is giving them direct ROI. And they can say, this is a machine that's going to pay itself, let's say in two years or even less, then we're able to make that investment. A large manufacturer, and again, there's a couple of R&D centers that I know of are looking into just purely, we're going to put some money aside. We're going to try and look into, again, I've seen even drones being tested within a factory to see if that would be feasible. Something as outlandish as that, but it's they have the funds to investigate it in order to be maybe the early or the first adopters of such technologies. But I think it's far and few in between, at least based on my experience. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that I think especially for like very forward looking technologies such as artificial intelligence and machine learning, I think the vast majority of that is going to be like very OEM vendor specific, right? I think that we need the Siemens and the Rockwells and the Googles and the AWSs and the Azures of the world to go prove to us that we can go take these machine learning models, reasonably push them up to the cloud and create some sort of additional value. So I think on that, we are still in the infancy stages of what actual applications work. And then somewhere between the C-suite, the boardroom of, hey, we'd like to use this technology and down on the plant floor where nothing is networked and everything is 30 years old, that there are different stories that it comes to that. I would say, I guess, in my opinion, I think that we certainly talk about forward-looking companies in the manufacturing space and some of what they have done. And I think that we certainly see forward-looking systems integrators and other companies of like that go receive accolades and have write-ups and things like that of really interesting projects, some of which are like awesome applications of technology that directly affect the bottom line, others of which are maybe not the most directly affect the bottom line, but it's like, hey, we did this thing, let's go find some reasons to, to go ahead and uh, let's go find some reasons to go ahead and find more opportunities to go ahead and use technologies like that. I'd like to come back to Addison because I've got a bit of a follow-up question and I feel like maybe we should have prepared you a little bit more for these, Addison. But so you talked about finding really good use cases and applications. And one of the things that Vlad and I kind of talk about over and over again is the pain points of, hey, we've got a bunch of really good applications, but we run into the point of we don't want to show it to anyone, right? We're the end user. We've developed this awesome thing in-house. We think it's industry leading, but we absolutely aren't going to show anyone. And while we also think it's absolutely industry leading, there's no real way to understand that it's industry leading 
because we aren't going to go show anyone, right? I'm not even going to ask the tough question of, is it our responsibility to go share more of these wins and success stories? But I'm going to go ask the question of, what do you think the future is going to look like? Will we be able to share more industry-leading successes with each other so that manufacturing in general can get better? And I'm going to say the answer to that is a resounding yes. You already see it with like how big tech has went, where you're seeing more and more of these big tech companies making everything open source. And I really do think that open source is going to be the future. One, because it just increases collaboration, reduces time that it takes to develop certain things. A great example of this from like the industrial automation world is the ignition exchange from inductive automation where like you can go and upload a resource and anybody can go and download it. Like Vertec, we were in the build-a-thon for inductive automation two years ago, and we mm -hmm. built this dashboard application that's now available for anybody to go use up on that space. And then you're seeing an increase of like people using forums to be able to talk to each other and share code. We're not quite at the point yet of going and fully deploying like I have my whole MES application. Let me just throw it up on GitHub so anybody can see. Like we're not there yet to the, that, that level of collaboration, but I think going forward, just the way that the rest of the tech sphere has went with this whole open source kind of ideology, I do think that's where the industry is headed just because it saves so much time in the long run and everyone really benefits from it especially with some of this software stuff where like it is mostly like the same types of things between different manufacturers. So I think that answers your question there. I'll, if I can make a comment and I don't want to steer us in a legal discussion, but I'd be curious if you have a company that receives, even if it's an HMI with faceplates at their facility, what the legal ramifications could be or what their expectations even are of you, let's say, sharing that faceplate like publicly. I think it will change also. I think open yeah. source will ultimately dominate, but I just, I don't know. I, I see concern, even though, again, I understand the software world and I understand perfectly well that if you share that faceplate, it will do absolutely no harm. But I think that almost every large customer that I've talked to is very protective of those, I want to say, again, like strange little items. But yeah, I think it will change, but I think it will take time. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Like we, we always say here at Vertec, like industrial automation is like 30 years behind the rest of software as far as like procedures and like how things are done. There's literally no such thing as source control in most of what we do. Nobody's using GitHub. Nobody's using any type of like storage repo to do any of this stuff. Whereas traditional software has been doing that for 20, 30 years now. So I think in that same line of thinking, like you said, I think it'll eventually happen, but like it's going to take a while for those like mindsets to shift before people really realize that this is a, like a huge benefit to their company in the long term, that is. Makes sense. Uh, Dave, you had a follow-up. I do. I kind of want to steer us towards that open source question, right? And so Addison, I will give you and maybe not super long time listeners a little bit of background. We've had this open source question in conversation a number of times, right? So Vlad and myself, and then we've had a number of guests who have come on. And recently we had Nick O'Leary on, the founder of Node-RED or co-inventor of Node-RED, talking about open source and open source in this. Do you imagine that a lot of the work that we're doing now is going to be open sourced for free as opposed to applications and more lockdown so people are able to maybe protect a little bit more of their intellectual property? I think the overall, like the platforms of which are developed and like broad, here's like an interface. I think that type of software is going to become open source. But when it comes to some of the like really more niche stuff, I definitely think there are industries that it's not going to ever become like, I think, especially when you get to a lot of the like highly regulated industries, like your power and utilities companies, there's just like legal and like security reasons why you wouldn't want that to be open source, but like from a platform standpoint and like from an overall like module integration standpoint of some of this stuff. I do think that will all go open source. I would definitely agree. But I think like the general public or maybe the industrial automation space, like sometimes misunderstands open source as like, you're almost like open to everyone taking mm -hmm. the entire yeah. code base versus again, I think it's about sharing 
like smaller modules and not reinventing the wheel. Because I think I've certainly been in the situation where I'm creating a data model for, let's say, a pump, a conveyor, like a filling tank, like whatever that may be. And I'm reinventing that from scratch because there's yep. just not someone who has set a standard. And so I'm left creating that from ground up. And that happens even within the same company across like yep. different facilities, right? There's a counterpart that's going to create that data model and he's going to do it a little bit differently than I am because there's no tool that allows us to. And I know now the OEMs, I think, are coming up with better ways to manage that, but I don't think it was as available or it's not as well covered as it is in traditional software. Yeah, that's even something that like we as system integrators deal with ourselves. Like when we're designing these MES systems, you might have like a task to design some portion of it. And without even thinking, you just start to go down the path of like, all right, this is what I need to do here. I'm going to go. And like, sometimes you don't even think about, oh, I should have asked to see if anybody's ever designed this before because 30, 40% of the time, like somebody's probably already done something that's 70% comparable that could save you a lot of time. So being able to like have some sort of like repository like that, that you can dig into even like internally is, would be hugely beneficial, but it's a lot of getting the mindset of all of your engineers on board with that same kind of reusability, like turning things into not a black box, but packaged up in a way where it can be reused for like multiple different uses. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree with, with that thought. If I can follow up with the question, so talking about all these different technologies, talking about different parties that might have an impact on what is coming next, do you have a wish list, Addison? If you were to say, we're trying to innovate, we're trying to move a little bit faster than we are today, what would be some interesting items that you would, I want to say, desire to be available in our space? It could be from OEMs, it could be requests from end users, but ultimately that would make maybe the automation engineering space a little bit easier and manageable. Yeah. So number one, right off the bat is some type of source control. It's what we struggle with the most here is basically what we've been talking about is reinventing the wheel for even internally reinventing the wheel. So that's definitely number one on my list of something that we need now. I think there also probably needs to be like a better standardization across some of these different integrations of how things talk to each other. I see it a lot with like ERP systems. And like the ability to connect to certain ERP systems to an MES system, it just proves to be really challenging based off of there's so many different ways that you can do it. There's so many different ways that people have their setup that becomes really challenging. So being able to get those standards down better and get more people on board. I think those are my like top two. I could probably think of some more if you want, but. No, I think that definitely makes sense. Dave, any thoughts on that? No, I think Addison, you bring up a bunch of good points. We're not going to touch that ERP conversation because that's a whole, it's a whole other conversation. We'd have to call Sam back on to go talk about ERPs and he could go explain in intricate details, all of the differences between them and then all of our heads would explode. So we'll save the listeners from that, but drop a link to the Sam Gupta episode that was significantly less technical about those interfaces. I agree with you on the version control and on the modeling. Have we done this before? I guess in my experience, I see systems integrators, some of them do a really good job of kind of this is the catalog of what we've done. We've got standard, if the customer doesn't have standards, this is the standard on how we go develop things. This is how we go develop the demo so people can understand the look and feel and things like that. And I think really good systems integrators have that built so you can go showcase what someone is going to get if they don't have a standard themselves. Having said that, it scares me every time I walk into a client. So I do, I in the past have done some amount of development from we don't have anything. And, and my current state, most of the time is people have a problem with the system and I'm coming in to go give them an understanding of what's going on with the entirety of the manufacturing as a system. And so every time I see things that aren't pretty screens, every time that I see that something is like on this section of machine it is one look and feel, and then three rows down, it's like similar, but maybe the font is different and it's definitely different sizes and somehow it looks different. And then half a line over is something that's like completely different, right? So we're like light scale on one and we're like dark scale on the other. And so I asked the question of, do you guys have standards documents? And Addison, every time I walk into a facility like that, the answer is no. Why would we need a standards document? We paid someone to go ahead and do this. So I would say when we talk about that, yes, having version control is important, but having standards documents and 
if end users are listening, one thing that I wish more people would take the time is to understand what is important and to have a conversation with someone about what is important and can we go build our architecture and can we go build our standards docs, however we want to call the standards docs, but let's go build the standards documents and this is what I want my, my graphical interfaces to look like and this is what these are the symbols I want to use. If we're borrowing symbols from a different software, we're borrowing, we're rebuilding them into whatever software we want, any of those things. But to go pick those standards, because that makes everything easier during the design and build, because you don't have Addison and 20 other people all slightly building something slightly different. And then you get to a screen and you're like, but guys, they're different when I switch from one to the other. And you're like, yeah, there was no standards. So the standards were so loosely defined, we developed within the standards. So I would say, in my opinion, or I guess in my hope, the systems integrators of the future are going to go as much as possible, kind of force on the, it, we're going to do an architecture. And then beyond the, we're going to do an architecture, we've got to go do all of these other things in order to help make sure that this system is successful. I think that that is exceptionally important to the success of many of those different organizations. Addison, I'll make the offer of if you want to go continue to continue on that conversation or if you say dave this is too hot of a question let's go on to the next one i'm good with either yeah if we can continue on to the next one i think we've like beat that topic to death here absolutely so i want to talk about data right and so we started talking the topic about data and i know you do a bunch of work on the mes right and so we've talked a bit with previous guests about what is their specialization industry-wise our conversation is mes is there are not 100 million clients who are looking for MES in this specific vertical. So can you tell us maybe a little bit about what you've seen working through a variety of, of MESs, maybe if there are some similarities, differences but between some groups and how that has continued to instill kind of your love of let's go use this data to make the organization more successful? Yeah, I think broadly what most people are looking for, like the very bare bones level of their MES is like your three main APQ values, your availability, performance, and quality. So they're looking for where can I reduce quality losses? Where can I reduce performance losses, availability losses? And I think even more so, most people from the very get-go are just, they just want to know why their line is down. For the longest time, like you have alarms, but they don't always do the best job of telling you what's going on from an HMI perspective. So a lot of times if we have like a new customer come to us, the very first thing they ask for is downtime. Like, why am I down? What can I do to get back up? So that broadly is like mo almost every application I've ever worked on. That's what we do first. And then after that, then you can start to get into some of these other idiosyncrasies that occur. But that is primarily what I've seen basically across every industry, every vertical that I've seen is just downtime. That's what everybody wants to know. Let me ask you a follow-up if I may. I guess in my world, a lot of those projects hinge on really good, I want to say, data collection. And a lot of times I think, again, bringing this back to a conversation of having good data before we can process that data. In your experience, do you see still manufacturers having, again, like unconnected machinery, oh. maybe networks that are not architected? So there's a lot of effort on that side of things versus we, you can't just walk in, plop your software, just pull the data in, which I think a lot of people may have that impression. So I guess I'm curious to see, like, where's the breakdown of that project being 80%? We really need to focus on networks, data, and being able to reach it versus installing and configuring the software to be able to process it. Yeah. And honestly, I've seen that so often is where they ask for, we want to know why our line is down. And they'll, they might even tell us like, yeah, we've got like every line is connected to ethernet. Like we have connection, but they have nothing that's actually telling them whether or not the line is down. Or in a lot of cases, they don't even have a definition of what it means to be down. Because in a lot of these systems, like you might have multiple different cells that are running at once. And if one of the cells goes down, does that mean your whole line is down? And a lot of times they might not even know that for themselves. So really being able to communicate, get those things nailed down from the start, oftentimes is a bigger challenge than like technical portion of it and coming up with these definitions of what is what. And oftentimes, like you get so, such conflicting answers from like the people who are on the floor, like your operator might say, no, this is why it's down. And then management might have a completely different definition of this is why it's down. But then in the same regard, like just showing up to a client site and like 
them asking for downtime on a piece of equipment that has no Ethernet connection whatsoever, and then wondering why they can't get data from it. I mean, it's, it's not connected to anything, so how do you expect us to get data? So I do think they're like from the get-go, like some more of those conversations have to be had around, do you actually understand what you're asking for before you like want us to go implement it? Because like we are only told so much as like a system integrator sometimes. And if you tell us like everything is connected and ready to go, and then we find out that it's not connected and ready to go, like now we have this huge gap that we have to cross and have to do all this extra work just because like you didn't understand your own system from the from the get go. Yeah, and I really like that comment. And I would add on to it, if I may, the same almost, I want to say inconsistency in definition even goes for OAE. Right. So that's a metric. And that's why I think it's so difficult also to benchmark between facilities, yes. because sometimes you can show up and their OE is showing you 110%. Right. And you can very clearly tell that's not, first of all, a realistic metric, but also that there's just a different understanding. And so then you start unraveling that entire conversation. It becomes difficult to standardize for that specific reason, because I think there's different understanding on how that's calculated, how they've been calculating it and what it at least is in terms of the standard. But yeah, I definitely agree that there's a lot of these, I want to say not misses, but ultimately I think it's differences in thought. Dave, what are your thoughts? I agree with that. I think that as we have discussed in the past, that to some extent, OE is that data science, right? But to, to some extent, it, it is the art because no one really wants to go see that their downtime is significantly worse than they thought their downtime was. And then it's, why is my system broken? Because obviously we can't possibly be running this bad. I thought we were running 78% and we were trying to get to 85, but you're telling me we're running at 16%? Oh man, we've got a long way to go. So I would absolutely agree with that. And I think that kind of has as many of the conversations and as Dante had to our previous point is one of those conversations that are sometimes more difficult to have with clients because it wasn't necessarily what was expected, but being able to have a little bit more structure and understanding, especially across the organization itself, is exceptionally important for any organization to be successful, especially if that organization has multiple facilities. So I do, we do need to take a brief moment in order to go ahead and thank some people. So we want to thank Opto22 sponsoring this. And I want to say, if you guys are looking for a forward-looking company, you don't have to look any further than Opto22. Opto22 is a California-based privately held manufacturer of industrial automation hardware and software, as you guys are seeing on the screen right now. They have nearly five decades of experience with an installed base in the millions at thousands of customers worldwide wide and are known for highly reliable, mission-critical USA-made products backed by lifetime warranties. What makes Opto22 products unique in their engineering philosophy for combining rugged, reliable OT systems with open IT technologies into affordable and versatile products that save developers, engineers, and technicians time, money, and effort. Opto's flagship products are the Groove Epic and the an Edge Programmable Industrial Controller and the Groove Rio and an Ethernet-based universal I.O. remote system. Learn more about Opto22 and the Groove product line today at opto22.com. And Vlad, I'm going to make you do the thing where you, you go showcase the, the Opto22s above your head, which is, again, my one of my favorite parts of this. Thank you for that, Vlad. But no, we want to thank Opto22 for this. And if you guys want to talk about and want to go listen to some awesome podcasts. We've had Benson Benson Hoagland on for, I think, two podcasts so far. We'll absolutely have him back on again at some point in the future. But he certainly talks a lot about that, that forward-looking kind of everything and a bunch of stuff that Opto has done in the past and still continues to be part of into the future. So thank, thank you guys at Opto22 uh, for that. Absolutely. Vlad, what are your thoughts? Where do you want to go on this conversation? Are we diving deeper into data? So I guess I, I was curious maybe to bring us back to different verticals. And I know that off stream, we talked to Addison a little bit. He's been doing a lot of work across different industries. And so my thought would be, or I guess like my question for Addison, do you see certain industries adopting more of this sort of like bleeding edge, cutting edge mentality versus others? And I know that we've prefaced also a little bit earlier with, let's say, the utilities and probably your heavily regulated environments are not going to be obviously as forward thinking, or at least in, in my general opinion, but 
what are your thoughts across like the industries? Are you seeing some industries moving a bit faster? And I think it's also with the perspective of can we learn something from other industries as again control systems engineers, as SCADA, MES engineers, maybe bring this back to where we are. So I know specifically at Vertec, we have a large group of people working on solar projects, which actually is one of our like largest verticals internal. I don't specifically work on a lot of solar projects, but I have a lot of colleagues that do. And I just know from like the work that I see other people doing that what solar is doing right now is pretty like data intensive on the bleeding edge. Like they're really pushing a lot of the high end like SCADA platforms forward a lot more so than like almost any of our other clients are right now. So I think that kind of like clean energy push where you're getting a lot of the money coming in from the federal government, like subsidizing some of this stuff. I think there's just a bigger push, especially since it's viewed as like this new technology to like make your screen design like look better. So that's one area where I'm specifically seeing one group come out over the other. The other area, I guess that I see a lot more of that too, is in these like large enterprise scale applications. So when you're talking about like MES systems that are maybe being developed for a smaller manufacturing company for maybe one or two sites, you're not necessarily seeing as much of this Google or Facebook level like UI design. But when you started to get into some of these really large scale enterprise projects where you're talking about hundreds of sites across the entire continent or even multiple continents, that's where you're starting to see a lot more of this UI, like big data push. So I think those bigger type projects are really the ones that are driving some of this stuff. And what's nice about that for like system integrators like Vertec is we can take like what we learn from doing those really large scale enterprise projects and then like use that knowledge and all of the stuff that like we've been able to develop based off of those projects and use that for these smaller customers that are coming to us to provide a better service, to provide a better project. So it's really, for us, it's those two different areas that are driving a lot of the innovation right now. I have, I guess I've personally not been to many solar projects. So I'm, I guess like I'd be curious to also understand those dynamics and why they would need such advanced maybe systems or analytics, because to me at least, so I've studied renewable and power energy systems in university. I've not seen implementations of them in the real world, but I'd be curious to see like what data they're getting besides like power, maybe like the rotation or like the angle of the panels and probably some like up down metrics if the panel has failed. So I'd be curious to understand like what goes into those that's really interesting I like yeah that. i'd have to go i'd have to go talk to some of the folks i know that work on it more than me i just know they're doing some cool stuff i can't speak to more specifics than that unfortunately no absolutely and look i think the other comment in like large enterprise i think that definitely makes sense right because i think there's i want to say more complexity and different challenges you're starting to face once you're trying to tie in multiple sites right? Your data is going to become a lot larger. Your data lake database, whatever you want to call it, is going to require, I want to say, different infrastructure. Oh, so yeah. I would definitely see why they're driving some of this innovation that can then easily be reapplied to, let's say, a smaller site versus the opposite could be very problematic, right? If you have a smaller site, I think it's difficult to just scale that up to an enterprise. So I think that comment definitely makes sense. Dave? Absolutely. I would say on the solar side, I guess most of my experience on solar farms is hanging out with the guys physically on the ground building the solar farms. But I would imagine on the data side, the vast majority of those are going to be basically completely remote controlled. And so we would want to know what the photovoltaic cells on each panel look like. And if we've got some starting to fail, we probably want to go warranty those out as quickly as possible. If we've got other failures and things like that, we probably want to go warranty those out as quickly as possible. And having the best data available will go ahead and let us do that. I guess from my perspective, I would imagine most of those guys get paid by a contract of X number of kilovolts or kilowatts a minute or an hour. And so they probably need really good data so that when they go build the energy company or when they go build whomever, or even if it's internal to the energy company itself, they need to say, hey, we produce this amount of power because we know that all of the coal fired and natural gas and other facilities are going to know how many kilowatts an hour 
that they are able to go ahead and produce. So I would say that and between that and the need for exceptionally high speed, because things are moving at the speed of light, if you guys will go ahead and forgive that pun, but I feel like Vlad walked me into it. It gives the need for extremely fast, high powered everything. And I think that there's a lot of money to Addison's previous comment. I think that we also, as we are seeing a number of companies coming in that are venture backed, as we see a number of companies that are just starting out and have other private equity or just private funding in general, I think that we see and will continue to see the, hey, we purchased our equipment at X number of dollars. We're still paying banknotes on that equipment. We have to go ahead and make money off of this. And if we can spend some amount of money to go find a significant return on investment, we need to go ahead and do something. I think that's a very different perspective from organizations that have been in the same family for two, three, five generations saying, hey, we have made money historically based this way. Why would I go change things around because I know that we've made money historically, historically this way. And then Dante had a, another comment in here. Thank you for that. Dante saying new, a new car factory needs to prove that they will reduce energy consumption over time and they need data capture systems to achieve that. D Dante had a couple of really good comments in here, especially talking about energy and energy efficiency in Europe. And I think when we look at a more kind of global perspective, I my understanding is many more, if not all of the European countries are forcing the folks that, that they have to go find some amount of electrical independence, especially with gas prices and other yeah. prices being so high. Perfect. No. And then Dante is saying ISO 5001 is the regulation that, that they need to follow. And honestly, we've had so many conversations around this. We should probably go find someone to to, to at least give us a, a bit of a better background on what that looks like, because it certainly seems interesting. Absolutely. It, it certainly seems interesting. Addison, I'd like to ask a couple of questions, and I know we've alluded a bit to it, of what does the future of systems integration look like? And I feel like we preface this conversation by saying data is the future of systems integration. And I don't think you're going to get any arguments from the folks here talking to you today that systems integration will need more data if you want to grow and continue to achieve. If you'd like to extrapolate on those initial thoughts, if you'd like to give us some other thoughts of what you think the future of systems integration would be, we would love to hear those, please. Yeah, I do think that data really is going to be the key in the future. We've been seeing it in traditional software for years. Every, Literally every company now is taking data from you, whether it's personal data or anything, and using that to drive advertisements or anything like that. So to, to say that like the same thing is not going to happen in manufacturing is just like almost ignorant. Like that's just what's going to happen. Like people are going to want it. And especially now when you're starting to see the rise of these really large scale machine learning algorithms that can do things like predict when you're going to have some type of failure on your line. You can't do that type of like analysis without having the data in place first. You can't successfully implement any type of machine learning or AI without knowing what's going on in your line in the first place. So before you can even start to have those conversations surrounding AI and big data, you have to be able to collect the data first. So definitely in the short term, it's going to be a lot more SCADA applications that are collecting that data, MES systems that are collecting that production data. And then I think within the next five to 10 years, you're really going to start to see this AI push takeoff and manufacturing just because like by nature, right? Like it's just going to drive so much efficiency gain in the future that like people are not going to be able to afford not to do it. If I can throw in a question, like on the data side, right? So we talked about a couple of challenges. Obviously you need to network properly. You need to have a solid architecture. I often hear very often the whole like unified namespace terminology, right? And I think the utopian I want to say state that we want to get to is you have a very single source of truth. You have one database that everybody's pulling from. I personally am skeptical if we're going to get there relatively fast and in one like step from where really? we are today. Like I'm curious, it, it, like what are the challenges, right? Like, what are the challenges? Maybe not necessarily just with that, but in getting that data, storing that contextualized data, being able to have something that makes sense in the long term versus maybe where we are today. 
like it's a really big challenge, right? Because for a lot of these customers, like you're running on these legacy systems that have been operational for 30, 40, 50 years. And to be able to go in and say, okay, we're going to transition to this entirely new system is just a really challenging prospect. So I think there's a couple different ways that you can go about it, each with their own challenges. One is like, you just straight up say, we're going to build this other system in parallel and then just swap over. And that's one way you can do it. Just say, okay, from June 22nd going forward, like all data in the past is like null and void. We're just going to swap over to this new system. But then of course you don't have historical data. It's easier from a standpoint of, I don't have to integrate all these old legacy systems, but I might not have historical data which you do see some people doing. But what's more likely to happen is people say, I want to migrate all this old data from, I might have a dozen different databases. And now that becomes a challenge, right? Because you might have things that don't line up quite right. And to be able to do that kind of integration requires a lot more like individuals from this customer that's doing it. A lot of institutional knowledge too, because those databases might've been written in ways that like you might not be able to understand if you weren't the one to design it. So there's a lot of challenges involved there. I don't know which what's the correct way to go. And it might come down to who the customer is and what their specific needs for that data are. But yeah, it's a challenge either way, especially when you're dealing with those legacy systems. Yeah, and I'm curious, to be honest with you, again, I don't have a, a, an answer that I think fits all solutions, but I'm curious to see like how it's going to shake up even from the like an integrator, let's say consultant, like whatever you may be, like third party outside to that end user, how that's going to really look. Because if I'm, let's say, if I'm going to deploy that system and I'm looking to have access to, let's say, certain pieces of that data to build out connections to ERP, MES, whatever that looks like, and somebody else comes in and is also able to manage that entire infrastructure, it becomes a challenge, right? Like whether we want to admit it or not, I think, again, it's almost a utopian view. Like I would love to have a single database, everybody can access it. But the reality is a little bit, I want to say, grayer than that because as soon as let's say if you're a third party that takes down my connections then i'm going to be blamed regardless right there's obviously going to be an investigation they're going to try and figure out whose fault it was but it becomes this like very strange i want to say battle because i want to be able to have a reliable system versus sharing that with everyone could be difficult but again i don't know if someone has achieved that single source of truth like view yet I've not seen it personally. I, I continue it. to hear. Yeah, I'm curious to see how it's going to play out in the next five, 10 years for sure. Dave, what do you think? I I think as much as it would be easy for all of our lives if there was one answer for everything, if years of experience in this industry has taught me anything, is that there is never necessarily one answer for everyone. And even if there is one answer for everyone, most groups think that they're very special and their answer should be different than the people who make the exact same thing 300 yards down the street. So I think it'll be very interesting. Think similar to the conversation that we were having about data modeling and everything like that with Travis last week is that while we are still very much in the nascent stages of what will the, the future look like on the data side, on the data modeling side, how are we going to go connect all of these? Will there be one group that kind of takes a lead and, and to Addison's earlier point goes and says, hey, this is the data structure we're going to have. And will it be an MQT? Will it be an OPC UA? Will it be another group? Will ISA or another group like that in order to go ahead and do that? I would imagine someone will have to set a standard, but I've got no, I don't have good guesses on who that is going to be. And if we are going to standardize a kind of with one geographical location, and then Europe is different, going to be different from the US, which is going to be different from Asia, which probably would not be a net positive for all of us, especially all of us who work in a variety of different locations, but anything is possible. I was going to say, I, I was going to say, you bring up a good point about the standardization uh, too. So I, I know ISA, a lot of people in the MES space know about ISA 95 and how ISA came out with this standard that's supposed to be like your benchmark for how you design and build these MES systems. And the yep. problem sometimes with these standards is they're either too vague or they're too broad. 
So like with ISA 95, for those out there who have used Cepasoft, which is a module that comes with inductive automation ignition, they really tried to go after, let's implement ISA 95 as much as possible. But what we've found is it's very difficult to create something that like fits every situation. Like even using the, like our, the Cepasoft modules, we're almost always having to build something on top of it because no manufacturing, two manufacturing processes are the same. So to be able to come up with some standard that fits every application and every use case, I honestly think is almost impossible just because of the broad range of things that you have to cover. Like it, you just, there's not enough words that you could put on a piece of paper to describe that. So I think that to create that utopian standard, I think is just that the utopia. I think there's general patterns that we can follow, but again, like everyone is different. I would agree. I think that it will certainly be difficult. I don't personally think that we can create one standard that will catch everyone. Might we see industries go after more specific standards and might we see those standards split between legacy and moving forward? I think that might be more realistic, but it doesn't necessarily solve all of the problems that, right. that we are talking about. But talking about solving those problems, Addison, I'm going to give you the, this real easy softball that I give everyone and you are prepared for. I want to know what you think the future is going to look like. And I'm not even going to force you into kind of this particular data only model topic. But what do you think the future of manufacturing and or systems integration is going to look like over the next five years? Next five years, I definitely think we're going to see like this larger push towards these data integrations. You're going to see a lot more like reducing like the number of people that it takes to like work on a specific line, whether or not you think that's a good thing or bad thing. It's just the way that it seems to be going that increased automation. Everybody's looking to do it, especially in the US. A lot more business decisions are going to be starting to be made with these like MES applications, for example, and being able to track your product through the manufacturing process. We're already seeing it now with like C-suite executives having these like MES applications being up on their like desktops, basically. So yeah, the data, again, the point that I've been driving home this entire time, that's really where I see, especially in the next five years is what I'm seeing. Absolutely. No, I think that is fantastic. We'd love to, we'd love to get a book recommendation from you, please. Okay. A little bit, not necessarily related to automation and data, but I, particularly what I do, a lot of it's about building habits. So my favorite book is Atomic Habits going forward. Definitely give it a read. It really helps you to get into these habits of doing your work well. Awesome. Awesome. I appreciate that. I think that you'll certainly have some takers on reading and or listening to that book. Thank you so much for that, Addison. I'd love to ask for some career advice, right? So if someone is early to mid-career and they are looking, they're looking maybe to make that transition into the data side, right? That they, you, you have sold them that data and MES is the future. What is the best pieces of career advice you would give people? Definitely got to go out and first find the job for it, right? Even if you're only going it as an entry level, just go and take that risk. If it's something that interests you, I guarantee you, like you'll know within the year, whether or not that's like what you want to be doing. And then also like the community, I think around a lot of this, like data driven stuff, like you go online to any of these communities and you can find people that are doing it. So definitely don't be afraid to reach out to people. Cause this is something that like people like myself love to talk about and love to like mentor other people who are coming up on this. So I guess don't be afraid to like ask questions, get involved in the community. It was probably the biggest piece of advice that I can give. Absolutely. I think, I'm sorry, go ahead, Vlad. I was going to, I was just, just going to add to that. I know you've mentioned ignition a couple of times and they have a really good free module, right? Where you can go and pretty much learn everything you need. Yep. Obviously practice should be, applied but ultimately you can get their software as well you can download and the same goes for sepasoft i know you've mentioned them too yes. they also have a library of videos so if you are looking to make that switch you can prepare and learn on your own at no cost and i don't know if there's good as we've discussed very early in this episode like university programs that prepare you for SCADA mes i don't know if there's university courses even on that, but uh, there's certainly free resources from the OEMs. Absolutely. No, I think that's good. I can't, I would like to maybe get a tad more specific. Madison, you've worked in a number of different yes, jobs in the past. 
if someone is saying, hey, I'm really looking to go find an MES job or a good MES job, do you have any particular pieces of advice, things to look for, things that have worked for you in the past that might be valuable to them? I think specifically, probably if you're going to want to go more into MES, definitely look more on the systems integrator side versus going to a specific company. And I say that just because if you go and be an MES engineer or a data engineer at a specific company, you're only going to see how things are done one specific way. Whereas if you go work for a systems integrator doing that same job, you're going to get access to a variety of different projects, be able to work on so many different types of things. But the experience that you gain in that is going to be, I think, a lot more valuable early career-wise than if you just shoehorn yourself into one very specific industry or even vertical. Absolutely. I would say that I think many different people have given the career advice of go work for a systems integrator. With all the good things, there will, of course, be bad things. We certainly see lots of people who don't last exceptionally long times in systems integration. But if you want to go learn and you're in the stage of learning, I know both Vlad and I learned a lot of good things and bad things while we were in systems integration. I think that is a very good piece of advice. Addison, last question for you is who should reach out? Are you Who do you want to connect with? What sort of conversations are you having? Is Vertex looking to hire? Are you looking for more customers? You're open, you're open soapbox for our listeners to thank you for, for coming and sharing all your thoughts with us. Yeah, absolutely. So if you are a customer looking for systems integration, specifically when it comes to like ignition applications, that's what we primarily do here at Vertec as like our MES engineers. We do like traditional controls as well. So if you're looking for somebody to do that type of work. If you are somebody who is looking for like entry level into this type of like data, yes, kind of design, we are definitely hiring. We're growing pretty fast. So if you are looking for opportunities, either reach out to myself or reach out to our LinkedIn page on LinkedIn and we'll definitely get back to you. Absolutely. Vlad, I was going to say, it looks like there's a, there's an MES and integration position pretty much on every site. So certainly yep. not a lack of opportunities in that space. No, that is awesome. Addison, thank you so much. And everyone, thank you so much for hanging out with us on another awesome manufacturing hub. Again, this month long, we're talking all about systems integrators of the future. We want to thank the folks at Opto22 for continuing to, uh, to sponsor this theme. If you guys have made it this far, please feel free to connect with Addison. And if you guys somehow have not connected with Flatteri, please go ahead, connect with us as well. You'll find that in all of the LinkedIn's, you guys will be able to go ahead and find us. And then you will also be able to find us if you you guys are listening in podcast form as well. Having said that, if you guys are still watching live, please hit the thumbs up button. Please subscribe. It helps everything that we're doing. And if you guys are listening on podcast form, please rate us five stars everywhere you can rate us five stars. Please go ahead and subscribe and follow along as, as Vlad laughs. But Addison, I have once again found that if I do the thing and ask people to like and subscribe, people like and subscribe. And then that gives us to more people so that more people can come listen to me, ask them to like and subscribe 75 minutes into this conversation. But no, I would say again, Addison, thank you so much. We'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Thanks, well, for thank you so me. much. Take care.